which comes to us again from the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 1, will be in verses 8 through 18. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You may be seated. We have talked um, a lot over the past few weeks, several weeks, about people um, and how we're supposed to love people and not say we hate people, which we're prone to do so many times. And I want you to think about this morning as we move into this passage, have people ever disappointed you? before? Anybody ever been hurt by people? No? Just me? (laughs) We've all been hurt by people. People have disappointed every one of us, I'm sure. Other side of the coin, anybody ever encouraged you? Have there ever been people that just really lifted you up, encouraged you? A person or some people? Um, I hope that we are a group of people who encourage each other and know that we will disappoint each other as we live this life together. So I want you to keep that in mind because that's exactly what we're covering today. As we look into this passage, and it is, man, I tell you, God's timing is never wrong. Never. So, as we start in verse 8, Therefore, Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
first word is therefore. And anytime we see therefore, we ask the question, what is that therefore there for? So we have to look back on what we saw last week, right? <clears throat> we started this last letter of Paul's to his spiritual son, Timothy. Second Timothy, we call it in our New Testaments. Paul is in Mamertine prison awaiting the carrying out of his death sentence when they will swiftly remove his head from the rest of his body, literally. And in his last days, he doesn't know when that's coming, but he's awaiting that time. In these last days, he wants to reach out to Timothy to pass the torch of the gospel to ensure that it, to ensure that the gospel is handled properly after Paul is gone. And it's to Timothy that, that he looks to ensure that this happens. And he tells Timothy that he is sure that the faith is clearly seen in Timothy. And he encourages Timothy to fan into flame the gift that was within Timothy. And then we ended last week's passage with Paul exhorting Timothy with chapter 1 verse 7, which reads, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now since that's true, therefore... Since the spirit that God has given us is not one of fear, but of power and love and self-control, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. God doesn't call his people to fear. He empowers them to live lives that show Him for who He is. So, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. It would be easy. I would say it might even be logical for Timothy to back off this whole God thing, this whole gospel thing, once they cut Paul's head off. I mean, God wants me to take care of myself, right? It would be easy for Timothy to be afraid and call it just good common sense or maybe taking care of his family or being strategic or maybe he just doesn't feel right right now or something. That would be very easy for Timothy to do and for us to do. But Paul says, don't do that, Timothy. Don't be ashamed. And we're going to see two kinds of people today. We're going to see ashamed people and convinced people. And here he calls on Timothy to not be ashamed. The word ashamed is a compound Greek word. And one of the words that make up that compound word means to disfigure or dishonor. The word itself means to heap shame upon Do not think about the testimony, the story, the truth of our Lord, the tenets of the faith, and dishonor them or disfigure them by backing off of them, hiding from them, running from them. That's being ashamed. Don't do that. And don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner either. Paul's not a prisoner of Rome. Paul's not a prisoner of Nero. Paul is God's prisoner. God has him in that prison. Just like Jesus in the garden, not my will but yours be done. 
and God's will being the cross. It was God's cross, not a Roman cross, that Jesus was crucified upon. And here, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner. Because that would be easy too, wouldn't it, Timothy? I mean, he's here in the chatter. Timothy, your buddy's in jail. Timothy, your big super apostle guy is about to lose his head. How's that sit with you, Timothy? It'd be awfully easy for Timothy to want to distance himself from a death row inmate, wouldn't it? And it might even make good sense, right? It might feel right, right? Well, Paul says it is quite the opposite. He tells Timothy to instead share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed of God or me, Timothy, but instead, Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed, but suffer. Don't shrink back, but press in. And notice it's share in suffering. That's one Greek word, share in suffering. It translates as be partaker of affliction. To suffer hardship together with one. Yeah, so it's not just a call to to suffer, but it's a call to suffer along with Paul. Share in this suffering with him. It's not a call to join him in jail, but rather to stay in the fight, in the gospel ministry, and to absorb whatever suffering that brings Timothy's way. Don't run away. Don't back down. But instead, keep running and take whatever lumps come your way. Like I have, Timothy, Paul says. Like your Lord did, Timothy, with his face set like a flint toward Jerusalem. Set your face, Timothy! Jason, and share in the sufferings that the gospel ministry brings your way. And share in my suffering and in the suffering of your Lord. And how did they do it? How did they share in that suffering? How did they go through the suffering? How's Timothy supposed to do it? Look, by the power of God. And now that's huge. The power, the dunamis of God Himself. How am I supposed to suffer? How am I supposed to endure when things hurt, when things are hard, when it doesn't feel right? I do that by God giving His power to to me and to His people so they can do His work and suffer together well as they do. God doesn't give us power so people can feel good or build their kingdom or get their way. No. God gives His power to His people corporately and individually to preach His gospel and to hold them up as they suffer together. When one suffers, we all suffer. The writer of the Hebrews refers to those that are in prison and he says, suffer as if you were there with them. And Paul's calling on Timothy to do the same thing here. God gives his power to his people to preach his gospel and to hold them up as they suffer. 
It's power to preach. It's power to live. It's power to suffer. It's power to stay together. And now Paul can't help but talk about this God and his salvation in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. How do you touch that? That makes me just want to do this and just let y'all look at that for a few minutes. Because I can only mess this up. That's all I can do. Paul always seems to follow or precede commands with doctrine. We saw that in Titus over and over and over again. And here, in calling on Timothy to suffer, he gets all kinds of doctrinal. He says, God is the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. God did the saving. God did the calling. And that's important to know if Timothy is to do the suffering in the ministry. Don't be ashamed of this, God. He saved you. God rescued Timothy from his sin and the just consequences of that sin. And after saving Timothy, God called Timothy to a holy calling. Kaleo hagios klesis. To call means to authoritatively communicate a demand for the presence or participation of someone. God authoritatively demanded that Timothy participate in the holy work of the gospel ministry. Not baby Jesus, meek and mild. Timothy, would you please help me? Timothy, come. Timothy, go. And why did God do this? It wasn't because of anything Timothy had done. Not because of our works. So then why? Because of His own purpose and grace. God does what God does. God saves who God saves. And God calls who God calls because of His own purpose and grace. Period. This is foundational truth and it serves as motivational truth. God saves and calls because of His own purpose and grace. And that grace was given in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to make God's grace available to the ones that God would save and call. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension opened the floodgates of God's grace for God's people. But look at the end of that verse. Before the ages began. God's saving... God's calling happened when? Before the ages began. God's salvation, God's calling is eternal, just like God Himself. God didn't reach a point where He decided, okay, I think I'm going to do something. In eternity past, which we cannot fathom because we got these little tiny pea brains. In eternity past, the eternal God had an eternal purpose to do what He would do at some point in this thing He called history that He created. Our salvation, listen to me church, individually and corporately, our salvation, our calling has always been God's plan. 
It's always been God's purpose. The psalmist would say, say la. Pause and think about that for a minute. There was never a point, well, I don't think there are points in eternity. There was never a point or a part of eternity past where your calling and your salvation wasn't a thing. Pause and ponder that. You figure that might motivate Timothy a little bit? You figure that might motivate me a little bit if I would focus on that? You. But Paul ain't done spreading this massive doctrine. Verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You want to get ready for Resurrection Sunday next week? Use this verse to ponder all week long. Eternity past, yes, but what was eternally true has now been manifested. God showed that eternal purpose, what He had always planned when Jesus appeared. Paul would say another place, at the fullness of time. Through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, God's plan, which had been a mystery hidden for ages, came to light, literally, when Jesus came on the scene. In a barn in Bethlehem. At the cry of a little baby, God's plan came to light. There he is. And the angels were like, glory to God in the highest. On earth peace with men with whom he's pleased to dwell. God's here. All this stuff we've wondered about for all these ages, there he is. It's come to light. It's Jesus. Through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. God's plan came to light when Jesus came on the scene. Through the appearing, the epiphany of our Savior Christ Jesus. And again, note how Paul keeps saying us and our and ours. I had focused on Timothy in the previous verses in the suffering and such, but Paul continually makes all of this a joint effort, a cooperation, a corporate thing. He wants Timothy to know that even when Paul is gone, Timothy is never alone. This thing we call Christianity is an us and an ours deal. It's a one another deal. It's not me and Jesus got our own thing going. I like Tom T. Hall, but that's terrible. Hairy-legged sinner, just like me. But back to our Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul describes him as the one, goodness gracious, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Go back through all of the Bible and look at the contrast between darkness and light and darkness and light and darkness and light. It's like all of the world since that fall in the garden had been shrouded in darkness. Little flashes of light here and there. And then Jesus, 
who called himself the light of the world, shows up. And with that light, we start to see things we've never seen before. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What a sentence fragment, huh? So first, Jesus abolished death. Now let's look at this word abolished. You don't have to read all that. I'll save you from it. Oh, it's not changing. Can you go to that definition? John, uh, Andrew, I can't see who's back there. My eyes don't work like they used to. Katargeo means to destroy, do away with, to render idle, unemployed, inactivate, inoperative. To cause a person or thing to have no further efficiency. To deprive of force, influence, power. To cause to cease, to put an end to, to do away with, to annul, to abolish. To be severed from, separated from, discharged from, loosed from anyone. To terminate all intercourse with one. And what did Jesus abolish? What did he put an end to? What did he render idle? What did he deprive of power? Death. Death! Do you want to encourage each other when you're down and struggling? Remind each other that death is dead for the Christian. Death, listen to me, believers. Listen to me, individuals. Listen to me, church. Death has no power. Over God's people. None. Your body will cease to function one day if Jesus doesn't come back. If he does come back, it's never going to cease to function. But you're not going to die. Ever. Jesus promised that in John 11. We talked about it last week. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Oh, good. Cool. (laughs) Death is dead. So struggle on. Suffer on. Because death is abolished. And in abolishing death, Jesus also brought life and immortality to light. Now there's a ta-da moment, right? It's new. It's improved. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Just look at that tomato. But wait, there's more. And more, and more, and more, and more. It's life and immortality. Out with death and in with life and immortality. And how did Jesus bring this life and unable to be deadness? Through the gospel. Church, there is no greater encouragement, no greater power in the universe than the gospel. The plan of God to save His people. The truth of the life and ministry of Jesus to take away sins and bring people into fellowship with God Himself. Paul repeats this truth over and over and over and over. Remember Christ Jesus. Remember His sacrifice. Remember His completed work. Remember the gospel. He did it. And we need to remember. We need to rehearse. We need to share. And we need to spread it all the time. 
The very first message I heard anybody from Providence Bible Church speak was Andrew McKay telling people that they need to preach the gospel to themselves. Almost nine years ago. We've got to preach it to ourselves. We've got to preach it to each other. We've got to preach it to lost people, saved people. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But I get ahead of myself. It's his story. It's Jesus' story. And we have to remember, rehearse, share, and spread it all the time. And Paul knows that that was his calling. Verse 11. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. For which refers back to the gospel. Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Here's another one of those polysyndetons we talked about last week. Three words with two ands to place emphasis on each word equally. Paul says his ministry given to him by God was to be a preacher and apostle and teacher. Preacher means proclaimer. Apostle means sent one. Teacher means one who explains and brings understanding. Paul preaches the gospel sent by Christ himself with the very words of Christ himself and goes to great lengths to help people understand what and whom he's preaching. That was Paul's life post-conversion. He gave himself to these three roles. And they all roll into one another. He was sent to preach and teach. And it's all for the gospel. And it leads him to the next verse, which is also a doozy. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul says that his appointment by God to be sent out to preach and teach the gospel is why he suffers as he does. Now take that in for just a second. I was sent by God to proclaim and explain the gospel. That's why I'm here in jail and that's why I'm about to die. God sent me so the world hates me. But... I am not ashamed, he says. I'm not feeling like I've done the wrong thing or ran the wrong route. I'm not hanging my head and feeling like people and their opinions are more important than God and His calling. I have no regrets. I have no doubts. Why? Why? Why does he know this? How can we know this? Because that's important. For I know whom I have believed. And that's huge. Paul's belief is in a person. Not just in words, not just a story. And of whom is he speaking? Speaking of God himself. And this is vital in all of this. Paul has placed his faith in the God who saves. He's not just placed his faith in being saved. He's placed his faith in the person of God which encompasses all that God is and all that God has done and all that God is going to do. I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and in his presence I am not ashamed because he is pleased with me. He approves. 
Hallelujah, we are who you say we are. And his approval is my goal and aim, so I'm not ashamed. And, now watch this, I am convinced. We've seen ashamed people, now Paul's going to show us convinced people. I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now note that structure. Note who he's referring to about what. Because it's a wow moment. Paul's faith in God is not just to save him or approve of him in his ministry, but Paul is convinced, persuaded, that God is able to keep safe what God has entrusted to Paul. Paul's gospel, Paul's ministry, Paul's preaching, Paul's teaching, Paul's very life. Paul is convinced that God will guard all of that. God will keep all of that until that day. What day is he referring to? The day that Paul stands before God and gives an account of how he has lived out his apostolic calling to preach and teach the gospel. Paul is confident that God will guard that calling. The eternal God who in eternity past saved and called Paul. And that God will guard that sending and that preaching and that teaching and that gospel that was entrusted to Paul. Paul is not reaching down deep and finding a way in himself to complete his ministry. Paul's not screwing up his courage and saying, I'm going to do this. I got faith in my ability to finish my ministry. Quite the opposite. Paul is confident that God will guard that calling and that sending and that preaching and that teaching and that gospel that was entrusted to Paul. God is able to guard what God has entrusted to Paul. So Paul is not ashamed. When I've struggled to believe, you have not let go of me, God my rock. And so he encourages Timothy in the next verse, to not be ashamed either. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. I'm not ashamed. I'm convinced because I trust God. So follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, Timothy. It's interesting that he points not to his life as an example here, but rather he points to the words he has spoken. Words that were given to him literally directly from Christ himself. Timothy, do what you've heard me teach and preach. And I love the picture of follow the pattern. There's a clear, solid standard, an unalterable standard, a perfect example that has to be kept to. You don't get to improvise here. You don't get to reinvent the wheel. You don't get to decide what this looks like. It's set in eternal stone. So follow that pattern. A specific process to follow. Any of you seamstresses out there know patterns well, don't you? What happens when you don't follow the pattern? You make garments 
that aren't what they're supposed to be. The pattern to follow is, the pattern is the sound words that Paul has spoken. What he has taught in his ministry. That's why we place such value on the apostolic doctrine. That's why we place such value on the words of the Old and the New Testament. Because they're the very words of God. They are the pattern that we are to follow. Not the culture. Not our preferences. The pattern. The words that Paul had received as direct revelation from Christ himself. Timothy, follow that pattern. When things are good, follow the pattern. When things are hard, follow the pattern. Remember what has been preached, what has been taught, and do those things. And teach those things. And those things are, quote, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The pattern and the sound words are in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What Paul has spent his whole ministry doing is explaining Jesus. That's what he spent his whole ministry doing. To have faith in Jesus. To love like Jesus. To be loved by Jesus. Placing all your faith in Jesus. The apostle of Christ has traveled the world giving words to show and to explain Jesus. Follow that pattern, Timothy. Jesus himself said, You Pharisees search the Old Testament hoping to find what God's doing. Well, those, those words, those teachings reveal me. Follow that pattern, Timothy, in what you teach, in what you do, in how you are. Follow the pattern of the sound words that were given to portray Jesus to all those around us. Follow the pattern which is in the words which are in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. It's all in Jesus Follow that pattern, but how? Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul has given clarity to the truth that his faith is in God's ability to guard what has been entrusted to him. Now, he almost literally encourages Timothy to do the exact same thing. He calls on Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to him. That good deposit is the same sound words Paul has prought and taught, preached and taught in his ministry. And those sound words are the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. So guard it, Timothy. Protect it. Preserve it. Keep it from being snatched away. How? By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Emphasis. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. How do I do this, Paul? You do it by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Aha! Paul believed God was able to guard what God had entrusted to Paul. And here he calls Timothy to guard the deposit by the Holy Spirit. Not Timothy ratcheting up his courage or sucking it up and pushing through. Not by trusting men to help him. No, by the Holy Spirit, by God's power. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. 
By God's power, by the Holy Spirit, guard what God has entrusted to you by God's power. Look to the Holy Spirit to minister, serve, bless, encourage, and strengthen you, Timothy. Guard the deposit by the Holy Spirit. Trust God to guard what He has entrusted to you. And again, note that Paul associates himself and all the church with Timothy by pointing out that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. Romans 8 says, whoever does not have the Spirit is not of the Spirit. And again, this word us is so important. Yes, the Holy Spirit is in each individual believer, but he dwells collectively with us. There is no Christianity apart from the church. You are a cell separated from the body. And you will die. Your faith will dry up like a potsherd outside of us. Not Providence Bible Church, but outside of the church. There is no Holy Spirit dwelling in You alone. It's within us. Our fellowship with God and with each other is the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us together. Paul's not calling on Timothy to get pumped up by or for himself. Go into your prayer closet and pray up and and have an ecstatic experience so that you can do what you need to do. Instead, he's calling on Timothy to know that the same Holy Spirit that's in Paul, the same Holy Spirit that's in those that he's ministering to is in Timothy and is working in and through them all in order to do his will. Guard the deposit, Timothy, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Yes! And thank God... When, when the Holy Spirit's operative, we're always happy and united in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's how it works. No more problems, no more struggles, no more suffering, no more disagreements. We look at each other and we smile and we're happy because we love each individual person in this body so much, nothing could distract us, right? That's how it works when we're operating together, right? I mean, it always works out perfect, right? Verse 15. You are aware, Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul is going to go into this last section of this first chapter of this letter by looking at some of those folks who have been around him at different parts of his ministry. Now remember, he's in prison awaiting his execution. Lots of time to reflect and remember. And here in verse 15, he recounts those who have deserted him. In calling Timothy to not be ashamed, he's going to show some instances of those who have been ashamed of Paul. You're aware, he says to Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Yikes. That's a lot of people. Of course, we think of the continent of Asia when we hear Asia. But in Paul's time, I don't know if y'all can see if it'll come up here. There it is. That top left word is Asia. There's Pontus and there's Phrygia and there's Pamphylia and Cappadocia, Mesopotamia and Jerusalem's down there on the bottom. Asia was a province in the western part of what we would call Turkey. 
today. And it's this Asia that Paul is referring to. But why would Paul say that all who are in Asia, this province, why would he say that they turned away from him? All of them. Well, if you remember, we said before that it was thought that Paul was in Nicopolis where he wintered at the end of Titus. MacArthur says that's where it's believed that Paul was arrested. Well, where's Nicopolis? It's in Asia. So you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. So he was probably there in Nicopolis, there in the province of Asia, where Paul got arrested. And Paul may be referring to no one coming to his aid, no one defending him at that arrest when he says, all there turned away from him. We don't have an account in the scripture of that happening. I don't think it could mean that literally every person in the province of Asia said, nope, nope, Paul, we, I don't think that's what it means. I think he's smarting. I think he's hurting from getting no help or deliverance when he was arrested there in Asia. But he says that Timothy's aware. Timothy knows what all this is about. So there's some interpersonal stuff that he's communicating with Timothy that can't be communicated to us because we don't understand it. And then he points out two guys in Asia, specifically in his frustrations, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And with names like that, it's no wonder they turned away from Paul. So all in Asia, the whole lot of them, Timothy, you know, and among all those people, these two guys specifically. It would seem that these two guys had labored with, ministered to, and or with Paul there in Asia while he was there. But when whatever happened in Asia happened, these two guys jetted. They turned from Paul. And here, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he points them out specifically. It seems like to me that the fact that these two guys did what they did especially stings Paul. Out of all those people in Asia who turned from him, he seems to be really affected by these two doing it. You ever been there? You just can't believe that person or those people would be among those who would desert you. I just can't believe they did. That person. I mean, I know people aren't always steady or loyal, but man, I never thought it would be them. Not Phygelus. He was my guy. Surely not Hermogenes. He's always been so reliable. So Paul just has to point them out, either out of shock or out of disgust. All in Asia, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. These two men who had been with him. The masses all turned away. And that hurts. But nothing hurts as bad as these two guys. Can you believe it, Timothy? It was Phygelus. It was Hermogenes. You ever felt like that? That person did it. Those people did it. E tu, Brute? Unfortunately, this is a common experience for all of God's people, isn't it? I've been hurt by the church. So has everybody. I've been hurt by the church at large, and I've been hurt by specific people who I never thought would ever hurt me. 
It's my testimony. And I would almost guarantee it's yours too. We get abandoned. We get hurt. People let us down. Paul, who had been surrounded by brothers and sisters, workers, co-laborers and disciples, now finds all of his people gone. And it hurts. As Paul's response here, pouring out his heart to Timothy, shows, it hurts. Is it all pain and hurt and desertion? Thankfully, no. Paul ends our passage today with verses 16 to 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he were often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Hmm. A good one. Here's a good egg. Onesiphorus has a good one. Phygelus Hermogenes? Eh. Onesiphorus? Yes. Paul singles out a guy, one guy, for some kindness shown to him. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Paul prays that God would grant this man he calls by name mercy. Actually, he prays it for his household. More on that in a minute. Paul says this guy, Onesiphorus, often refreshed him and was not ashamed of Paul's chains. Now, what's that mean? Well, we know where Paul's writing this from, and we'll keep reiterating that all through the letter. He's in a hole-in-the-ground prison in Rome. And it's evident that Onesiphorus had come to Rome and had searched earnestly until he found out where Paul was. And when he found out, he didn't cower in fear or ditch Paul when he found out Paul was in Mamertine prison. Instead, it says that Onesiphorus often refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of his chains. So there were multiple times, enough for Paul to call them often, when Onesiphorus did something to refresh Paul. I want to look at that word. Anapsuko translates as refresh, to cool again, to cool off. Recover from the effects of heat, to refresh one's spirit, to recover breath, take the air, cool off, revive, refresh oneself. Now watch this. You see those numbers 303 and 5594? Okay, those are Strong's numbers. Who knows what Strong's numbers Don't raise your hand. If you know what Strong's numbers are, good for you. You're old is what it boils down to. You've used a Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible at some point in your life. We don't need those things anymore. We can click on everything. But basically what that means is this compound word comes from two Greek words. And those numbers identify Greek words. Okay? Now watch this. Um, So 303. The word refresh is made up of two Greek words. 303 is a word A-N-A. That's how we transliterate it. That means to be in the midst of. Okay? Now 5594 is the Greek word sucho, P-S-U-C-H-O. And look what it means. It means to breathe, to blow, to cool by blowing, to be made or grow cool or cold. 
Now watch this. So the word refresh made up of these two Greek words literally means to be in the midst of like a cool breeze. Onesiphorus was literally a breath of fresh air to Paul in his imprisonment. Often. Paul also says that Onesiphorus had worked with him in Ephesus when Paul was there too. He's like, Timothy, you know what service Onesiphorus rendered to me at Ephesus. So Paul hopes that God blesses Onesiphorus. But look at this. Paul prayed that the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Why the household? Well, there are thoughts. Commentator Philip Towner says this, quote, When the church is under fire, to give aid to an imprisoned pastor becomes a courageous act of faith. At one of the worst, most dangerous times for Christians, this is precisely what Onesiphorus did for Paul. The apostle was in prison in Rome in the time of Nero, and by repeatedly visiting him at this time and giving aid, Onesiphorus identified himself closely with this enemy of the state and his illegal religion. It is certainly not exaggerating to say that this friend risked his life in order to help Paul. This is unashamed loyalty to the gospel. Now watch this. He goes on to say this. To judge from Paul's blessing wish for him, mercy from the Lord on that day, verse 18, Onesiphorus may have died by the time that Paul wrote, and if so, he may have died because of his association with Paul. One so loyal to the cause of Christ could surely hope to find mercy on the day of Christ's return and a just reward. End of quote. Onesiphorus literally may have laid down his life trying to refresh Paul often. And so Paul prays that his household would be given mercy, possibly because their husband and their dad are gone. He was not ashamed. A man of whom the world was not worthy. That's sobering, isn't it? This is not just Onesiphorus dropping by for lemonade and cookies. Anybody cookies with lemonade? I don't know. This man was risking life and limb to help his friend Paul get some relief in that dank hole in the ground. What if we loved each other that much? What if we'd run to the jail knowing that it may cost us our lives, just so I might refresh you. Blow on you like a cool breeze. Get you a little bit of relief in your suffering. No, too many times we're not convinced. We're ashamed. Onesiphorus was unashamed. He was convinced. When others ran, when everybody else ran, when others deserted Paul, even Phygelus and Hermogenes, this man very probably laid down his life in order just to help Paul a little bit while he could. Wow. Oh, for a church full of these people. Oh, that I might be this person. Oh, that Paul could encourage Timothy to be an Onesiphorus and not a Phygelus or a Hermogenes.
So we turn to application from this powerful section of Scripture. Four S's. Shame, secure, spirit, and salvation. Shame, secure, spirit, and salvation. First is shame. And my question to you individually and us collectively is, are we ashamed? Be careful. Paul calls on Timothy in this passage to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Oh, be careful. Two very grave dangers here that are possible for the individual believer. We can be ashamed of the Word of God and we can be ashamed of the people of God. Well, I don't really believe that all of the Bible is necessarily true. There can be some things that we take into account for cultural considerations. That's ashamed. Well, this person and that person get on my nerves and I just can't abide them. That's ashamed. Are we ashamed? The testimony that Paul calls Timothy to not be ashamed of includes the message, the messenger, the body, God's plan, God's design, God's people. Are we ashamed of any of these things? And today the message is do not be ashamed of the testimony or of me, his prisoner. Paul was likely, well, I would say Paul was in the hardest place to love Paul that Paul could be. Any people in your life it's just hard to love? Paul says don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony or of me. Don't shrink back. Don't run from this. Press in. Fight your doubts. Address these issues with people. Don't run. Ashamed people turn away. And it hurts. It hurts them and it hurts the people they turn away from. Ashamed people turn away from the Word of God. And it hurts them. Thank God it can't hurt the testimony. It can't. Remember in 1 Timothy, way back when, several weeks ago, Paul said people are going to leave. It's going to happen. People are going to deconstruct their faith. That's the new thing, right? We talked about that several weeks ago. Well, here he's showing that's what's happening here. Doubting people are ashamed. Doubting people fall away. Doubting people run. They don't press in. They don't press into the testimony and they don't press into the messengers of the testimony. There will be phygelises. There will be hermogenes. And sometimes it will feel like all of Asia has turned from you. You're like, thanks for that encouragement. That's what I'm here to do. 
little personal testimony. Goodness gracious, a few years ago, I thought we were done, guys. I set up the Seventh-day Adventist building and talked with Will and Steve. And we said, are we going to keep doing this or not? Because it feels like all of Asia has turned from us. And three men looked each other in the eyes and said, if it's only us, we're going to keep doing it. And I'm not praising Will. I'm not praising Steve. I'm not praising myself. And thank God, here we are. But listen to me, church. There will be times when it hurts. And that hurt is usually going to come in the form of people. The people sitting in this room this morning. Some of the people who aren't here this morning. Some of the people that have left. It has felt like a dadgum atom bomb in my heart. Am I jealous? Hermogenes. Don't let that make you think or feel like you should stop doing what you're doing. When it hurts, press in. Don't run away. Don't be ashamed. That's shame is application point one. Second application point, secure. Convinced people are secure people. Not always secure and nothing can shake them. Listen, we all have bumps in the road. We all have faults and failures and we all have dips. But doggone it, I am calling on us individually and corporately to be convinced people. Paul's statement was, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What about Onesiphorus? You think he was convinced? Sure seems like he was. How do you become convinced? That goes to our next application point. That really is kind of one, but shame, secure, the spirit. How do I become convinced? How do you become convinced? You put your trust in the fact that it's God who does God's work. Paul told Timothy, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Convinced people are people who have stopped looking inward, stopped looking at themselves and their faults and their failures, and they've stopped looking at other people and their faults and their failures, and they've started focusing on the work of God to do the work of God. The person of God to do the work of God. The Spirit of God to do the work of God. When they're hurt, when they're suffering, their faith is in the person of God. Their faith is in the power of God. Their faith is in the Spirit of God. Paul also said, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
Convinced people are people whose eyes, hearts, minds, and lives are fixed on God and trusting God to do what only God can do in and through them. In the midst of discouragement, in the blessing, in the pain, through it all, through it all, He is our rock. And God's work ends up coming down to what? Comes down to saving people. That's God's work. Shame, secure, spirit, salvation. And how does God save people? Through the gospel. Listen to me, church. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Be convinced of the words of the gospel and be convinced that the Spirit Himself is the power in that gospel to save people. Compromising on the gospel will lead you astray. But now watch this. A lack of compromise on the gospel will push people away as well. But don't waffle on the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be convinced of the gospel and the power of the Spirit that's operative in the gospel. Romans 1, 16-17, Paul says to the Roman Christians, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I would add this, For I am convinced that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, which reiterates that it's God's work in God's power using God's gospel that we have to center and focus ourselves individually and corporately on. Not my situation, not my circumstances, not my feelings. Those all play a part. But that's not what I'm convinced of or by. I'm convinced as I am focused on the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power for salvation. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be convinced of it. Trusting God to do the work from start to finish to save sinners by the power therein whereof by which I am the chief. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people who do not live lives of shame, ashamed of the gospel or ashamed of your people. But God, I pray that we would be sure, secure people who are convinced that salvation is your work. Our salvation from beginning to end is your work. And God, that we trust your spirit to apply the gospel to our lives, live out the gospel through our lives so that other people can hear, know, trust, believe, and live out that same gospel. It is your work, God. May we place our faith in you. And not be ashamed. Holy Spirit, convince us this morning.
convince us of the truth of the gospel, that we are all sinners who need salvation from the wrath of God that is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Holy Spirit, show us our need for regeneration and may we call out by that regenerative spirit that you give for salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ who did live and who did die and who was buried and who was raised to new life and now gives that new life to people as he has ascended and seated on high at the right hand of the Father. May we all place our faith in him and know from start to finish he will finish what he has started. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand for a doxology, benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can.